I always start, even if they retain me with the focus of, I just want to draft these documents mm-hmm. and sort of get this over with. It's really important for me to give them the tools that they need yes. in order to be able to not only figure out the next steps, but to understand the process that they're in and where they're going to go and also what their options are and some of the limitations that I would have as a lawyer as well as limitations that they will face as, as any litigant. Welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Matt. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week, we've got an interview with the wonderful Renata Austin, who is a really cool lawyer in Toronto, and she's doing some amazing things in terms of practice. Absolutely. I first heard about Renata, who we're featuring today from our board member and former Osgood Dean, Lauren Susson, who said, this is an amazing woman who's doing incredible access to justice work. And I now know a lot more about Renata and all of this is true. Renata operates her legal practice out of a storefront office in Eglinton West in Toronto. And she spends most of her time on family and criminal matters. That's where she says that she just got drawn by the needs of her surrounding community and the people who had legal problems. She does spend a lot of time in court, but she also, as you'll see in this conversation, spends a lot of time talking with her clients and trying to enable them to be partners with her in their matters. And I think that, uh, you know, this is a fantastic example of the kind of coaching practice that we talk about so much at the NSRLP and that so many people say they're looking for in their personal lawyers these days. And I just want to read a quote from Renata's website. It says, we support access to justice for low and moderate income clients by offering reasonable fees, accepting legal aid certificates, and assisting self-represented litigants. And that is a statement that I know is absolutely one that is consistent with the practice, with the work that they do out of that office. And one of the things that she talks a lot about in this upcoming interview is her use of limited scope retainers or unbundling as well as coaching to try to keep fees at a reasonable and a manageable level for people. So let's listen. I'm thrilled that I'm going to be able to talk to you today, and I'm so incredibly impressed. I've listened a couple of times to your Michael Enright interview, and, you know, you're one of the people who gives me hope, I have to say. Renata, a major reason, obviously, that I wanted to bring you onto the podcast was because I know from your reputation that your practice is focused on low-income clients. Which is not to say, of course, that the middle classes can't afford lawyers either these days. And there is, I think, increasingly widespread agreement, at least in principle, that this means that many Canadians can't access justice because they can't afford full representation. But we seem to be just at the very beginning of learning about ways that private practitioners like yourself can both make a living but also serve people whose needs are not being met. So I wanted to begin the conversation 
with a topic that is familiar, I think, to our podcast listeners, but I'm hoping you can take us on a bit more of a deep dive over, which is limited scope retainers. Could you say a little about how you use limited scope retainers or on bundle services and maybe when you don't offer them and what some of the challenges are that you see? Yes, absolutely. I think limited scope retainers are, it's a really great way to start our discussion because in many ways that's how my practice started. It actually started as a part-time thing that I was doing while having a full-time job and it was really helping people with parts of their litigation. When I started, it was a mixture of administrative and civil litigation. I've now moved yes. my practice to doing primarily family and a bit of criminal law. Sure, I don't need to tell you, and we have a serious crisis in our family court system. Very few people who go before our courts are able to afford a lawyer. Yes. So I moved into doing limited scope retainers in family law because of the demand that was there for doing this kind of work. In terms of when I use them, when I think about limited scope retainers, I kind of think about three kind of sort of distinct approaches to doing limited scope retainers. And I would say the first one would be drafting, which I do a significant amount of that. The second one would be sort of advice giving and doing research. And the third part would be coaching and um, sort of dealing with big picture strategy. Right. I primarily tend to do unlimited scope retainers drafting, and that's probably for a couple of reasons. I think the most important one being that I think that pleadings in any litigation is really the most important part of your case. And the written documents that you put in front of a court at the end of the day is really, that's what starts a court case. It's, it tells the, the judge what you're asking for or um, what your response is to any sort of a claim that's being made against you. And yes. if the, the written paperwork is not solid, then it can make it very challenging for people to um, to get whatever kind of relief they're seeking from the court. So that's the big one where I spend a significant amount of my time just drafting, helping people with the drafting product. But I'm sure you see people who come to you, who find you, after they have already begun their action because they simply weren't aware that they could retain somebody for a limited task like this and they're not able to afford full representation. So you must face some some challenging situations here where people really want you to help them, but they were not aware of what you might be able to do for them in this way until too late and they'd already pled. Absolutely. And what I'll say to that is sometimes, and I, I don't want to um, to say that I would never take on a case where they've already filed the document, right. but it kind of depends where on where things are. I think we're now in an era where judges and other parties are becoming more aware of limited scope retainers. So I found that particularly in some of our courts in Toronto, that a judge would much rather have a, a client with some representation. They might, you know, allow you to amend whatever is necessary, maybe do it on an oral motion or maybe do it really quickly so that you're able to get to the next step. 
So it, it, it depends. But so I try to work with people as much as possible. If there is an opportunity to correct whatever thing needs to be fixed or corrected, or there's some way to work with what we have, then I will certainly try to do that. You know, I'm very curious about how you use your services on a limited scope basis to coach people. And I was very struck by something that a lawyer said to me recently, which was that there's a way in which a limited service agreement doesn't really work properly without the philosophy of coaching. In other words, it's hard to come in and just do something and leave again, and it's much more about empowering people to take the next step. So tell tell me a little bit about your coaching approach. Absolutely. So when I start with any matter, and this is actually across the board, full scope retainer or limited, I think it's really, really important to start with the client having an understanding of the process that they are involved in, where they are, what their objectives are, and how they get there. Because if they don't understand that at any point, and it's especially so for litigants who are self-represented, it's going to be a very long, unnecessary, complex, and frustrating process for them. I always start, even if they retain me with the focus of, I just want to draft these documents Mm -hmm. and sort of get this over with, it's really important for me to give them the tools that they need in order to be able to not only figure out the next steps, but to understand the process that they're in and where they're going to go and also what their options are and some of the limitations that I would have as a lawyer as well as limitations that they will face as as any litigant. I think a big part of the frustration that I hear from people, especially in family court, is just not understanding what is going on and why things are so overly complex. There are many of the things that come across my desk are actually things that are resolvable. They are things that if people, again, understand what their options are, they understand what the limitations are, and they understand the overarching philosophy of the system that they're Mm -hmm. in, it -hmm. makes things a lot easier for them. And so that's something that I build into my practice, no matter which stage of the proceedings I'm in or what the retainer says, but it's especially important for self-represented litigants. That is very consistent, Renata, with what we heard when I did the original national study with self-represented litigants, that they did not any longer wish to simply be told what to do and, you know, in many ways to be told, you know, trust me, I'll I'll handle it. They actually wanted to be able to understand what was happening to them. And there was a lot of frustration expressed uh, in uh, from some of the people that I interviewed then and in earlier studies that they were, they were not necessarily being engaged as a partner, that they weren't really part of the action and that they felt that they wanted to be much more collaborative. Now, what you've described and what these individuals are effectively asking for, we know is very counterintuitive for lawyers because they're much more used to being in charge. So I'm sure, especially in a situation where you've got this added problem of people having limited resources and they can only afford so much of your time, and I know your time is billed uh, much more affordably than many lawyers' time, but it's still billed. 
And, you know, what, what do you do to balance that need to have a kind of a partnership and a collaboration with the fact that they've only got so many dollars to spend? That's another thing mm. I, I spend time mm. really explaining to clients, that mm. I am about as um, compassionate as they come, but it's really important to remember that it is a business. At the end of the day, every day, every week, every month, every year, in order to have a sustainable business, there's a certain amount of money that I need to make. I always tell people to the best way to save yourself money in any kind of litigation is to sit back, take a deep breath, and be reasonable. Think about what the long-term objective is that you have and think about where are areas to make compromise. And I think especially on it when the budget is limited, that it's important to put your best foot forward at the outset rather than spending time dealing with issues that really are not going to, um, to be helpful at the end of the day. So in the family context, if the, if what you really want to do is to be able to spend time with your child as opposed to gaining custody, for example, mm-hmm. don't spend time sort of fighting over yeah. an issue that you know is going to be a losing issue because at the end of the day, it's going to cost money and it's also the, the time and emotional toll that um, that it can take. So I really yeah. encourage people at the beginning to to step back and think about what they're, put their best foot forward right from um, from the outset. I think what you're saying, Renata, about setting people's realistic expectations is something that a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, many of them are self-represented litigants, will really resonate for them because we hear constant complaints from people that if they go into the system alone, they have no idea of how complex, burdensome, time-consuming, draining, and stressful it will be. But we also hear those same complaints from people, and I have in in past work that I've done, about lawyers, that they didn't really give them a reality check. And I'm so taken with the fact that at the same time as you're saying to people, uh, you know, we only have limited time here, you're also saying, think about what you really need and think about compromise, think about getting to a place that, you know, meets as many of your goals as possible, including simply having this conflict over. Now, that takes a lot of trust to have that conversation with people, and I certainly know that myself from my own work. So how do you do that? How do you go about building that kind of trust with a client? Uh, trust is absolutely the foundation of the solicitor-client relationship, and it, it absolutely goes both ways. Right from the beginning, I, again, start with explaining the overall philosophy of the family law system, yes. what the options and limitations are. I'm very honest with them right from the outset. I'm respectful, and I acknowledge, especially if they are one of their goals is something that I don't think is attainable. I certainly acknowledge um, that this is something that they want, and I, I acknowledge their feelings and why they want it, but then I also tell them what the reality yeah, is. Yeah. I've even I've been known to actually sort of give my clients cases that are accessible, I, I think are accessible, and sort of say to them, I know you're not going to understand every single thing that's mentioned in this case, but here's the part that I want you to read and get a sense oh, of so how, yeah. how judges think about the issue. Yeah, I, so you're treating them as intelligent human beings absolutely. who can be reasoned with about this. 
And, you know, I'm also curious, though, because there's another dimension. I mean, there are so many different layers of challenge for the practice you're doing. You're working with communities who probably are fairly mistrustful of lawyers, especially some of the more marginalized clients. There may be clients that you work with who have had very bad experiences in the legal system beforehand. How do you deal with that? Absolutely. And this is where I really think that um, that lived experience and being someone I think that people who come into my office feel like they can relate to is helpful. So it helps that I am young, that I'm a a black woman, Mm. that I sort of live in the general community in which I work. And people, they, I think people who walk in that may have had negative experiences with the justice system in the past, that alone, seeing that I'm somebody who doesn't fit the mold as a legal insider, I think that alone goes a very long way to breaking down barriers. We try our best in this office to um, to make it a welcoming environment where people feel like they can be themselves, that we're not, they're not walking into a foreign environment that just feels like another player in this larger system that isn't able to relate to them. And I think that that's something, quite frankly, that has helped a lot in terms of being able to develop and, and gain that trust of clients. Well, I have been hearing from the clients of lawyers and now from self-represented litigants for many years now is that those are the things that actually distance them more and make them less trustful than somebody who seems, as you're explaining, to be, you know, part of their community and just in an ordinary office. Right. And I, what I'll say is as a young person, I always found that the people who I, who resonated with me, who I felt a connection to were people who I had something in common with and I felt like they could relate to me on a human level. I long ago rejected that model of needing to have the trappings of what Mm -hmm. one would expect a lawyer to look like. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times where... Sometimes, you know, that does seem appealing or I might have somebody make a comment, but I'd say more often than not that people are grateful. And I think especially in family law, which is such a private, it touches Mm. on the most intimate parts of people's lives. And they want, you need to have an understanding and that trust and that relatability in order for people to really open up to you and to be able to help them with their family law matter. Well, I really, I appreciate you saying this, Renata, because I cannot tell you how often I hear people in the family law system say that when they go into their lawyer's offices, now they know where the money, their money's going. And I think that might sometimes be unfair, but that is a perception that gets created. And I think that many lawyers aren't even aware that that is a perception that gets created, that it's, that it's being used for those trappings rather than to help them. Now, there's another question I want to ask you about here, sort of taking it from a slightly different angle, because one of the things that we need are more people who are willing to do the type of work that you're doing and to do it well. But we also need clients to understand, I think, how to go forward in seeking out services in a way that gives them some power. And partly this is because people are much more comfortable when they feel like they have some idea what they're choosing to spend their limited funds on. 
But, you know, historically, that's just never been the model. We don't expect clients to come in and negotiate for what they want. We expect them to kind of take it or leave it. So how much negotiating do you do with your clients, and how do you think we can start to much better equip people to do that negotiating with other lawyers? So because we have a monopoly on providing legal services in this province, I think we have an obligation to address the access to justice issue and not just sit and talk about it at conferences, but actually go out and educate the public about the options that are available to them, as well as the legal system, because that's how you start to empower people to, to even be in a position to walk into a lawyer's office and to start negotiating for the kinds of services that they need. I, before going off to to law school, I'm not sure that I would have been in a position to walk into a lawyer's office and to be able to negotiate. I'm a lawyer now, and in some areas, I might not be able to, to do that. So I think the onus really is on us as a profession to help people develop the language and the tools that they need in order to be able to um, to effectively negotiate for themselves. The practice you've chosen to do is not practice that um, is going to pay off your student loan in a couple of years. I think we can safely say that. But it's also obviously a practice that really motivates you, that you're really passionate about. So one of the things that I always like to ask people in these conversations, because I think this is so important to trying to inspire others, is given all of the practical challenges of doing limited scope practice, all of the trust issues that you deal with all the time, the how hard you have to work to understand your clients' real needs and to help empower them to meet, to meet those. What is it that keeps you going? There are moments of doubt, you know, sometimes it happens on a daily basis and other times it's, it's a long time before those doubts come up. I'd say my motivation is one, just a fundamental belief that as lawyers that we have a responsibility to ensure that legal services are accessible to people. So that's the starting point. But the second piece is that it's really, really rewarding work, especially in the area of family law when you're dealing with people's children. Because when you see somebody who comes in who may not have had access to their child for a very long time or they're having limited amounts of access or perhaps they have a support issue, haven't received support for a significant period of time. And seeing them get from the point where they are when they come into the office and helping them meet whatever goal it is that either together we've identified as a goal or that they come in already with that goal in mind. Mm-hmm. It, it really goes beyond, I think, the satisfaction that one can get from simply getting a salary. And I compare the level of personal satisfaction between mm-hmm. the work that I do and the work mm-hmm. that a number of my friends and former classmates mm-hmm. do, mm-hmm. and I compare the level of satisfaction, I would say that I'm certainly um, that I'm certainly winning, and I've certainly done what I came into this profession to do. That's very inspiring, Renata. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. That's just one of my favorite conversations that 
you've had uh, in the course of us doing these podcasts. I'm so inspired by Renata, and I know you are too. Yeah. And Moy and I were actually talking about this uh, a little bit ago that hearing Renata speak about her work and what she's doing, and then I know in conversations we've had about, you know, certain other people that we know working in the justice system, it makes us feel better Mm -hmm. (laughs) about the state of the justice system. It certainly does. Yeah. It certainly does. This is a good news podcast. It is. And one of the things that I really liked, one of the specific things she talked about that she does uh, with her clients is that she looks for uh, previous cases that are similar in some way or relate to theirs and then gives that to them yeah. for reading. Yeah. And as you pointed out, trust that they are intelligent enough yes, and capable Yes, intelligent enough and reasonable people. To do it, yeah. And I love that that's such a great example of the way in which she makes her clients into her partners and her collaborators and she gives them the big picture and she explains and makes sure they understand and allows them to have a major say in what their in what their case is going to be. You know, it's so interesting listening to Renata talk about how she, you know, sets expectations with people and explains the process and yes, brings them in by kind of giving them homework because you know, there are many lawyers who I know feel that they work hard at explaining things to their clients and they work hard about clar- clarifying expectations. But I know from the research I've done over many years and we know from the project and talking to SRLs that people don't necessarily understand unless it's explained in a way that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. And as lawyers, we tend to be in a bit of a bubble and we tend to use language and concepts that you know we've forgotten that the rest of the world doesn't actually you know use. It was so refreshing to hear how important that was and how she saw that as a really important skill. And it's about giving people respect and dignity, Mm -hmm. which again is something that we have heard from self-represented litigants so much. And I think that instead of this default to, oh, I can't tell my client that, they won't understand it, or if I tell my client that, maybe they'll get all, you know, crazy unreasonable, Renata is taking an approach of saying, you know, you're a human being, you deserve to know what's going on, I'm going to try to bring you in and make you part of this. Mm Uh, one of the other things I really liked was her talking about the way that she tries in her office to make people feel as comfortable as possible, mm-hmm. to make people feel that this isn't some out-of-touch business that they're entering into. And part of that is that not necessarily buying into all of the kind of traditional trappings yeah. of a law office. Yeah. So I'm guessing she doesn't have a lot of dark leather and wood paneling that she's she's gone oh, from, or down, or, or yeah, or like oil paintings. She's gone for a more down-to-earth regular office and that she understands that that helps people feel a little less intimidated. Right. I haven't actually been into Renata's office, but she describes it as a very functional space used by herself and her, her associates. And, you know, what it made me think about was the number of times we've heard from people who used to have lawyers um, who, who they worked with, they're now representing themselves, talking about how when they walked into those fancy offices, their immediate reaction was, how much of what I'm paying <laughs> is going on this? Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that lawyers are still stuck often in this idea that they have to impress their clients. And what they don't realize is that they're kind of 10 years behind the times here because people like to see that what they're paying for is going directly to services. Mm -hmm. And I think as well, I was really struck by how Renata talks about the importance of relating to people because another very traditional model is that the lawyers up here as the expert Mm. and the clients down there as the novice. And again, that's all part of the kind of the mystique 
But again, we hear constantly from people, they don't want that relationship. They want to be seen as a partner. They want to be somebody who is is treated as an intelligent human being, mm-hmm. just the way that she talks about that. Mm-hmm. Who is respected and um, seen as somebody who can contribute to their own case. Exactly. Finally, what I really what I really liked at the end was the way she talked about her own personal satisfaction with her work. Mm. And that, you know, you alluded to the fact that, yes, she's not making as much money as she might be if she had taken, you know, a job on Bay Street or some other type of practice. But she countered by saying, well, yeah, but when I compare my life and my job satisfaction to some of my friends from law school and some of my colleagues in the field, I think I'm definitely winning in terms of personal satisfaction. That's really great. Yeah. I, again, really inspiring. I mean, what Renata's is doing in this practice isn't easy. Mm. And, you know, she would be the first to say that, you know, there are some days that are tough days and there are some clients who are harder to work with than others. But her fundamental belief in people's own dignity and the fact that they can be collaborators with her, I think means that she's doing a type of work that she just finds really personally rewarding mm. in a completely different way kind of value set than we see in traditional practice. So we need more Renata Austins. Yes. And I hope we're going to see more and more of them coming out of our law schools in the future. In other news, first up, an update on the issue of judicial vacancies across the country. Last week, the Canadian federal government announced the appointments of 19 new judges including seven specifically in Ontario. With these appointments, there are still currently 57 judicial vacancies that need to be filled. These vacancies have drawn criticism and commentary from a variety of parties, and the new Canadian Bar Association president, Ray Adlington, weighed in as well. He compared the delays to long lines at a store, saying that if the line becomes too long, people may not feel it is worthwhile to wait. When applying this analogy to the justice system, Long lines can have detrimental impacts on the willingness and ability of individuals to have adequate access to justice. On our website, you can find a link to an article by The Ottawa Citizen that discusses the current state of judicial vacancies in more detail, and an article by Lawyers Daily that discusses the specific judges appointed in Ontario. Next up is a story about delays, but not those specifically related to judicial vacancies. Instead, turning our attention to PEI, two Court of Appeal justices have spoken out about the state of the province's Workers' Compensation Board. Chief Justice David Jenkins and Justice Michelle Murphy refer to the delays as unacceptable and an affront to the vision of expeditious access to justice for workers. In one instance, the initial decision took 22 months and the appeal took an additional 22 months, ultimately resulting in the now 70-year-old applicant to be denied benefit. Efficiency in the justice system is an ever-present concern, and we need to find ways of ensuring that everyone can have the access that they deserve. Provinces like Manitoba have taken recent steps to speed up court systems for family law, but clearly the delays are being seen in other areas of law as well. Some of the actions taken by Manitoba included a new scheduling model, time guidelines, and improved case flow management. Hopefully, changes in other areas of law are on the horizon. Lastly, in case you missed it, the NSRLP released a new blog post on inequality and discrimination in the justice system. The blog post looks at othering within the justice system, both 
when considering lawyers from specific marginalized groups, as well as when considering SRLs who encounter other barriers when they're forced to represent themselves. This is definitely worth the read for anyone involved in the justice system, regardless of what role you play. And that's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. 